Questions and comments? Question comment, the Honorable Member for Victoria. I would ask the Honorable Member uh, to consider listening to the voices of sex workers. Sex workers are saying that sex work is work. And I also ask the Honourable Member if he considers the Harper government's decision to implement Bill 36, which criminalized the work environments, the establishments that sex workers go to to feel safe, that criminalized their ability to hire security, if he acknowledges that this is a factor in this death and many others. Member for Peace River Westlock. Um, I would just respond to that by asking the honorable member across the way um, if it's a uh, area of work that she has considered and uh, if that is an appropriate. Uh, 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 Mr. Speaker, I think this makes the point. This makes the point. I do not think any woman in this country ever chooses this as a job. This is something that they are trafficked into. This is something that we have to. Everyone, uh, this week we are really honored to have MP Laurel Collins with us. Laurel is a community organizer and climate activist. She was an instructor at University of Victoria and a city councillor prior to being elected MP for Victoria. And so, uh, Laurel, thank you for joining us. And can you tell us a bit about your entry into politics, yourself, and your community? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me on today. It's really great to be here. And yeah, I got involved in politics mainly through community organizing. Uh, I was I was teaching up at the University of Victoria. I saw more and more the, that um, I was teaching social justice studies and political sociology, the sociology of gender, and the issues that I really cared about and that I love discussing with my students. Really, the way to make a difference on those issues was to get together with people in my community and organize around the issues that really mattered to us. And for me, that was around climate justice, uh, around housing, uh, affordable rentals, and it was kind of a number of things were happening at the same time. There was uh, Bill C-51, uh, which was the Harper government's so-called anti-terrorism bill, um, and I ended up speaking on panels and organizing with the community around trying to stop that bill and really trying to highlight the impact on Indigenous organizers, on environmental organizers, and on the kind of uh, really highlighting the Islamophobic undertones behind that bill as well. Um, and so through that, along with the same time, um, there was a community up just about 45 minutes north of here where my sister and my niece and my nephew all live. Uh, and there was going to be a toxic soil dump put at the head of their watershed. And so I was up there standing in front of trucks and organizing with the community, doing childcare for my sister while she organized with her community. And those kind of propelled me into community organizing. And I ended up co-founding and co-chairing uh, Divest Victoria. So asking the city to take their money out of fossil fuels, put them into sustainable investments. And it was through that work and some of the work on the housing crisis that I was recruited um, to run for city council. And that has kind of propelled me into the political world, really now trying to make change from the inside instead of pushing from the out. Thank you for sharing that. It sounds like a very colorful history and, you know, we're honored that we can play a little role in it now as well. One of the other things that put you in the spotlight last year was the incident in parliament where you were at, where you asked about sex workers' rights and then were asked if you wanted to do that job. And it started a bit of a debate online, but for us, what's important are the sex workers' rights themselves. So for some background for our listeners, in 2013, the Supreme Court of Canada released a decision called the Queen in Bedford, where it ruled that the old criminal prohibitions on sex work violated the Constitution. In response, the Harper government enacted the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act, which skirted around the constitutional prohibitions and enacted what we call the Nordic model, where it's criminalized to purchase rather than sell sex. And this still replicates the same dangers under the old model. Um, it hasn't been tested in court yet at, a, at an appellate level, but we know that from, from our own work on the ground. And the liberals who opposed the law when it was introduced promised to repeal it back in 2015, and that didn't happen. 
Now the law is statutorily up for review by the Justice Committee, supposed to happen this year, um, which is quickly coming to a close. And we're curious as as to whether you have an update on that. And if you can also speak more broadly as to what sex work advocacy looks like in Parliament. Yeah, great question. And thanks for bringing up this topic. You know, at the time, um, what I was saying in the House of Commons was that we need to listen to sex workers. Uh, And sex workers are telling us that sex work is different than human trafficking. It's often conflated by the conservatives and people who are advocating against sex worker rights. Um, And really, the response from that conservative MP, uh, MP Verson, was is a something he would never ask of a male colleague. You know, he would never have asked that if I had been a man. Um, but fundamentally, what he was saying was restigmatizing sex workers and the work that they do. Um, and I think, you know, it's really important to go back to that initial uh, kind of question of if we listen to sex workers and if we listen to what they're telling us, which is sex work is work, um, how do we best support them and how do we create laws that best protect them and their rights? And I think, you know, I've spoken to a number of my liberal uh, colleagues and a number of them seem supportive of reviewing this legislation. Honestly, I don't think it's a priority for this liberal government and it's disappointing. And we have an incredible uh, NDP MP, Randall Garrison, who's my neighbor, but also uh, he's our justice critic. And he, this is an issue that is very important to him. He's been strong on it for a long time. We have an amazing organization that overlaps our writings uh, peers, and they do peer support for sex workers. And really, th- that the laws are in desperate need of review and, cha- and change. The way that the Harper government set up the law was that really not only is it criminal to purchase sex, but it is criminal to have what they call a brothel. Um, so kind of indoor work. Um, it's also criminalized to have to work uh, for a sex worker in a kind of protective capacity. So that means that if uh, a sex worker wants to hire a bodyguard or someone to provide additional protection, that that person is then doing something illegal. And it really undermines sex workers' ability to protect themselves and to make choices for themselves. So I have been (laughs) having conversations across party lines, trying to get some traction on this, asking questions repeatedly in the House about it. And from what I've talked to, we've my my colleague Randall and I have uh, sat down with other sex work organizations And we've had lots of conversations about this. Really, I think the difficulty is kind of getting it on the priority uh, list of things that the Justice Committee needs to tackle right now, because they are dealing with a lot of things. Not, you know, right now in the House, we're debating medical assistance and dying, which is a huge piece of legislation. And so getting the sex work review, which needs to happen, (laughs) uh, kind of up on the list is going to be it's going to be a challenge. and We're going to keep pushing for it. Right. And can you clarify this for me? My understanding is there's a review built into the law itself. So whether or not it's a priority, it it technically needs to happen. So how does that actually, how is it acceptable or permissible to not do it? Yeah, Uh, the way in which committees work. um, So we had a statutory review of the um, SIPA. Uh, which is the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. And honestly, I'm, you know, this is my first term and it's my first uh, time being on committee. So I'm learning this as I go. Um, But we had a statutory review of SEPA. Now, SEPA hasn't been updated or modernized in 20 years. So two decades. In 2017, the committee did a full study of it and they provided 87 recommendations. The government still hasn't implemented any of them. I hear from the government that they're going to uh, be bringing forward some changes in the new year. But our committee, so we got that statutory review and it says it's kind of like as soon as possible, you need to do this. And so uh, we are doing studies on electric vehicles. We're going to be talking about the climate accountability legislation. That that review uh, for our study may not happen until after uh, a number of the things that are already on our list. And even when it does happen, the committee gets to decide how many days uh, we spend on it and what kind of what kind of report it's a kind of collaborative report sent to the House of Commons. And unless uh, we can get a concurrence motion that goes with a report from or a recommendation from committee, then the House doesn't even need to vote on it. 
And so it could just be an empty report that goes to the house and nothing happens to it. And so it's really important uh, with these pieces, whether it's the sex work legislation or the reviews of the Canada Environmental Protection Act, um, that you have members of parliament who are there working across party lines to really get this on the priority and then voted on. Thank you so much for also explaining that in a way that I think anyone could understand, because sometimes it's very confusing when we just watch these sessions or see these like clips from members of parliament, but that gives us kind of the mechanics behind it. Well, you get to learn as I'm learning. So hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, it's super helpful. And then um, shifting gears a little bit, but the, the COVID economic recovery seems kind of like, in my opinion, a perfect chance to start um, a green transition. And that that's sometimes like, it's kind of hard to see if that's happening or not. In, in, but we know that there's also a climate emergency and some action needs to be taken. And that's something you care about, obviously, as well. And so in the past, 2015 was kind of exciting with the LEAP manifesto. And now there's a lot of buzz around a Green New Deal. And I'd love to hear you talk about where you think things are at and what you're advocating for. And like, what is a Canadian vision or version of a Green New Deal? And do we have that kind of, um, I guess, momentum for a Green New Deal here? Uh, great question. And it's one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, you know, I think we need a ambitious and transformative Green New Deal. I'm really proud to have seconded and stand with my colleague, Peter Julian, who put forward uh, motion M1. He put it forward in the last parliament as well, uh, a motion, you know, supporting a Green New Deal. Honestly, we have been working uh, with colleagues from other parties. We hosted a kind of an evening. This was right before uh, kind of COVID hit in early March. Uh, we hosted an evening where MPs from all parties came. We actually had a couple of conservatives even show up. Um, but we had a number of uh, Bloc MPs, Liberal MPs, Green members of Parliament, uh, almost our entire NDP caucus was able to make it that night. And really people showing up in support of a Green New Deal. So I think there is momentum now, we haven't actually gotten kind of the threshold. So Peter uh, wanted to get a threshold of members of parliament, you know, over 100 members of parliament signing on. Now, <laughs> I could don't quote me on the number potentially, <laughs> but he wants a threshold in which that the legislation would actually have a chance of passing before putting it forward in, in parliament. And what I've kind of the sense that I've gotten from uh, liberal MPs that I've talked to is there are a lot of them who are interested in it, but whether or not it has kind of central party support, what we've seen again and again from the Liberal Party is kind of big promises when it comes to the environment. And so lots of talk about ambitious plans and exceeding our 2030 targets, but very low on details when it comes to actual investments in the kind of recovery and the kind of just and sustainable recovery that we need. And, you know, they recently tabled Bill C-12, which is the Climate Accountability Act, is their net zero accountability legislation. And for me, you know, this is something that I've been working on for the past year. It's something that New Democrats are so passionate about. Jack Layton first put it forward in 2006. Um, NDP MPs have put it forward again and again and again in Parliament. And so I was so looking forward to this piece of legislation, climate accountability, so important. It's not investments. It's not a just and sustainable recovery. It's really just a structure to keep the government accountable, transparent and on track to meeting targets. It has to be paired with a climate plan and with those kind of investments. But just that piece of legislation, I was so excited about. It was tabled. It has no uh, they promised five year milestone targets. It has no target milestone target for 2025. They have left out any real accountability for the next 10 years, which are the most critical 10 years. Uh, all the top world scientists are telling us the next decade's the most important. Um, and, you know, back to your kind of original question about that, the, these investments in the, the just and sustainable re recovery, the kind of investments that would create good, sustainable jobs, uh, that is has been completely missing. And in the government's throne speech, they said they would table a climate plan to exceed our 2030 targets immediately. Now that was two months ago, but in this bill, they've now given themselves another nine months after the bill receives royal assent. So potentially a year from now uh, to come up with a 2030 target that's more ambitious than the one we have, which means really they're giving themselves another year uh, up to a year 
to table a real climate plan to meet those targets. And that is just so disheartening when, when we know the urgency of the crisis that we're facing, when we already are seeing the impacts of climate change, whether it's in wildfires, uh, flooding, more frequent extreme weather, when we have read about the impacts that are coming uh, and the potential for catastrophic climate change, it is it is just baffling to me how liberal members of parliament can claim to be climate leaders and then put off climate action, put off climate accountability. And not only are they not doing the things that we, we know need to be done, they're also doing a bunch of things that are are impeding our progress. And that includes buying the Trans Mountain Pipeline. That includes uh, handing out billions of dollars in fossil fuel subsidies to profitable oil and gas companies every year. Anyway, I think I might have gone on a bit of a rant. This is my favorite topic and one of the things I'm most passionate about. So thank you for the question. No problem. And um, no, you led us to a, a place for another question, actually our next question, which is what does green accountability look like to you? Yeah. And for me, um, what I would like to see is really when I think about uh, climate accountability, it has kind of four main parts. And one is around that setting more ambitious targets. We know the targets we have right now are not adequate to keep global temperatures below 1.5. It's not adequate to do our fair share of of that work. Um, And they're really our current targets are Stephen Harper's targets. The Liberals have admitted they need to exceed them, but they are always vague about what that means. Um, So really, we need a transparent process where experts are actually uh, recommending, advising and and putting those targets into place. Um, And so that requires an arm's length advisory body. Um, They have an advisory body in the current bill, but it only is a kind of advice giving has no real role in the the kind of four pieces that I'm going to outline. So that first piece is the setting of ambitious climate targets. The next one uh, is really developing the climate plan. And so we need accountability. So when a government develops a climate plan, we need an arm's length, a body who's going to look at that climate plan and say, does it actually, is it adequate to meet our target? Right now, we have a government who keeps on telling us we're on track. But Whenever we have a report from the Parliamentary Budget Office or or the Environment Commissioner, they say we're actually not on track. And uh, we know that we've missed every single climate target. And so we know we don't have a good track record. We're not on track currently to meeting our targets. So we need, when a government puts forward a plan, someone to review that plan and say, is it up to snuff? Is it not? Uh, And if it isn't, then what uh, is the government going to do to adjust that plan to actually make it adequate to meet our targets? The other two pieces are around progress reporting and assessment reporting. And so this bill does have progress reporting two years before the target. Uh, So in this case, say if you're looking at the 2030 target, that progress report would come in 2028. And that ideally gives the government a little bit of time to, if they're not on track to meet that target, make some adjustments and do some ambitious climate (laughs) uh, investments to actually get us back on track. And then the assessment reporting is really after the fact. And that's, did you meet the target? It's a pass fail. And even though those pieces, the progress report and the assessment report are in the legislation, there is no one that the government's really accountable to. The environment commissioner has to do one report every five years, but it's not clearly outlined what that report will kind of say, whether it's a pass fail. Also, we just found out um, a week and a half ago that the environment commissioner doesn't have the resources to do the current environmental work that they are doing. Uh, So they've been understaffed, under-resourced, and they aren't actually a truly independent officer of parliament. So I've put forward a motion to the environment committee asking them to recommend that we make the environment commissioner a truly independent officer of parliament, just like our official languages uh, commissioner, someone who is independent, who can give that independent advice, has their own budget, and can't have the Auditor General taking their staff or their resources for other projects. Really important to have some kind of arm's length body who's gonna keep us on track when it comes to our targets, when it comes to creating the plan and whether the plan is up to actually meeting those targets and then whether or not the progress report and the assessment report are accurate. Wow, thank you for laying that out for us. 
I think you, you painted a really nice picture. I, I wasn't expecting to have a very good understanding of it now. And I think I do. I would just add one last thing. You know, I think the, the only other thing that I would add, which I didn't even think was going to be an issue. I, I, it's just, it's unbelievable to me that they've put off climate accountability for 10 years. And I would say, really, we need to make sure that this government isn't backloading climate action. And we've seen this and again and again, if you put it off far enough away, it's not going to be in this election cycle. Um, and so we really need to make sure that whatever climate accountability is happening, it's taking place now and it's for the coming years. Yeah. Otherwise, kids are going to start suing the government like they already are. Yeah. So... I mean, like I'm, I'm a law student who's helping with that litigation right now in Ontario. So it's very exciting. Uh, amazing. Thank you for doing that work. Honestly, kids shouldn't have to fight. They shouldn't have to march in the street. They shouldn't have to sue the government. They shouldn't have to fight to protect their future. You know, that is our job yeah. as members of parliament. We're supposed to be creating laws that will protect their future. Yeah. And it is just, it's heartbreaking that we have continued to fail young people in this way. Switching, well, we're still, still talking about climate, but we're curious as to whether you think green growth is possible or whether we need to move to degrowth in order to actually save ourselves. Ah, it's a great question as well. Honestly, I, I think our current economic model of kind of ever expanding growth isn't working. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of ways in which it's not working. One of them is uh, the impacts on our environment and impacts on human health. But the, you know, unbelievable inequality that we experience within our economic system, um, so many, so there's so many flaws. Um, where I see kind of the potential to make um, a difference when it comes to actually substantially meeting our climate, like, I think this is a, always a question of kind of transformative change and uh, incremental change. And I am a firm believer in trying for both. <laughs> um, while we are trying to dramatically transform a lot of our systems, uh, we also need to be making that kind of incremental process within the structures that we have. Um, and it is a, it's a funny balance. So when I'm talking about a just and sustainable recovery, a lot of the things that uh, we're talking about is really job creation. Um, and that fits within the current economic model. It fits within this idea of uh, ever expanding growth, uh, et cetera. But I do think that we need to have a conversation about uh, what other economic models, what other community models, national models would work for us and how we make those kind of transformative changes. Yeah, there needs to be both of those conversations happening at the same time, a kind of critique of the, the foundation on which we are standing currently. And, you know, within the current model that we're working with, how can we make uh, concrete steps towards meeting our climate targets, reducing inequality? Um, yeah. In the house. You've mentioned how we must find a nation to nation relationship or like use nation to nation relationships for a commitment to undrip and reconciliation. And there are multiple water crises happening throughout Canada right now, uh, especially indigenous communities have been falsely promised change and reconciliation for years. And while Canada is lauded as uh, nice, like a nice place to live by media and like big L liberals, as we speak, uh, Ness Cantaga has families that have been evacuated due to this crisis. So can you expand for our listeners? what you mean when you say nation to nation and a commitment to undrip and reconciliation. And I know that the undrip, the implementation of undrip, the bill is before parliament right now, from what I understand. Yeah. And so they, the liberals just tabled that bill. And I just want to first give a, you know, huge shout out and recognition to Romeo Saganash, who's the NDP member of parliament, a former NDP member of parliament who tabled that piece of legislation in the House. I would say that his piece of legislation was stronger. This, like, the fact that the government is doing this now is a huge win for all of the grassroots and Indigenous organizers who have pushed for this legislation, Romeo being, you know, a huge leader in that. And similarly, Leah Gazan um, has worked for decades on this. And I got to speak on her bill, uh, Bill C-232, um, which is uh, an act 
creating a framework to address the climate emergency. And it includes climate accountability. It includes um, kind of a framework for climate action, but it also most like importantly, it grounds that work in a commitment to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, to free prior and informed consent, and to respect acknowledgement and inclusion of Indigenous knowledge into the work that we're doing. And yeah, I just, I think that so often either uh, the fact that our, our legal system needs to be completely revamped uh, to ensure that we are in line with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is forgotten or just kind of given a bit of lip service. My concerns with the current bill, which has been tabled by the Liberals, one is that it says that the kind of wording is the government should uh, align its laws with rather than it will. And legally, um, it's a concern that there's a there's kind of wiggle room in there. The other concern is that I've you know, seeing the response from another, a number of Indigenous nations who are concerned about the lack of consultation just in the bill, it's, uh, in the development of the bill itself, and who are really wanting to be engaged, more meaningful just as this moves forward. And then also, I think there's, the language in the bill talks about aligning Canadian laws with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which is important, but it doesn't go so far as really enshrining um, undrip in law. And so I think there's an opportunity to strengthen this bill to make it really clear that that's what we're doing. We're enshrining uh, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People into law. But from the first glance at the bill, and it did just come out yesterday, so uh, I, I'm hesitant to kind of fully uh, be excited about the strength of it. I think it, it seems to me like a slightly watered down version of what organizers have been really pushing for. That said, it's still this huge uh, momentous step. And I, you know, I also want to kind of celebrate that moment that this is a culmination of what so many people have been working for. And fundamentally, I think anyone who is living in Canada uh, is living with the repercussions, the implications, the ongoing uh, colonization, and that especially our federal, provincial, municipal governments need to come to terms with what that actually means um, and what a nation-to-nation -nation relationship with uh, First Nations communities means. And it's going to be a long road, I think. Um, but this is an important first step. And uh, it just... It needs to be something, you know, we're talking, we were talking a moment ago about that kind of difference between this transformative uh, work and the kind of incremental work. We need a transformation in the way that Canada relates to Indigenous peoples and Indigenous communities. Uh, it is absolutely unacceptable that we still have boil water advisories, that we don't have clean water in First Nations communities. That would never happen if it was Victoria or if it was Toronto or if, you know, it is entirely unacceptable and it is a, you know, visible and explicit form of racism that is happening. And the fact that the government this week admitted that they're going to break their promise and not get rid of all boil water advisories uh, by 2021, by the spring of 2021, it is unacceptable. It is, you know, this government has had six years and the fact that this is still going on, the fact that they can so quickly get you know, support out to the big banks and to, you know, it is just, it's kind of inconceivable to me that this is still happening. And I, I don't know if either of you watched the video of the young girl um, speaking about what that means for her to be displaced from her home, to not be able to return because of lack of clean drinking water. And really that it feels like people, uh, it feels like being invisible. It feels like people don't care. It feels like she doesn't matter. And I think that needs to end. You know, we can no longer have uh, children. We can never no longer have communities. Can't we can't have people in our country who feel like the government doesn't care? And I think so many people are experiencing that right now. Um, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I'm wondering now a more tangible environmental issue is how do you feel 
as a climate critic from BC, you know, when you have a provincial government in favor of coastal gas link pipeline. And, you know, for us, we can't really understand what makes that different from TMX and other pipelines when really the effect is the same. And so, yeah, I'm just wondering how you like how you deal with that tension um, as a environmentalist activist and also, you know, a member of the party. Yeah. And, you know, my work really focuses on what I can do federally. And so, you know, I'm proud to be part of a party who has said uh, fracking is needs to be part of our past. It can't be part of our future, that we need to rapidly transition away from uh, fossil fuels, that, you know, we are facing a climate emergency and we need to acknowledge that. I uh, I am really glad to see so many of the things that the BCNDP government has done and uh, really was excited um, and am excited about the potential of the Clean BC climate plan. Um, but really, when I'm looking at Canada and across Canada and what the direction that we need to head, we know we need to move rapidly towards a low carbon economy. And that means investments in clean energy and retrofits in green infrastructure in all of the things that we know are going to move us towards meeting our climate targets, creating good, sustainable jobs, creating a more equitable society. We also know that we need to uh, stop doing a lot of the things that we've been talking about, uh, you know, purchasing pipelines, giving away fossil fuel subsidies to profitable oil and gas companies. And so I'm going to keep on fighting for those things. And really in my role, keep on fighting federally. Thank you. Now we're going to switch gears away from climate. We want to ask about the WE scandal. Um, you know, in their attempt to have Canadians forget about WE scandal, the government promised that $900 million to students, but we actually don't really know what updates are on that and where that money went. Um, and, you know, in answering that, can can you also maybe speak to why that sort of model of charity is bad to begin with? Um, and and tying this into, you know, if you can tie it into a discussion about OSAP, uh, like student loans, we're in Ontario, so we, th we think OSAP, but, you know, the, the National Student Loan Service um, and how people were charged again, despite, you know, the attempts to freeze in the past and, and calls to do so again. Yeah. Thank you for bringing this up. And it's one of these really frustrating pieces where, you know, the government got involved in this scandal. Um, then in order to hide from the scandal and try and distract can Canadians from it, they prorogued Parliament, which means that we didn't have um, a session of Parliament, of you know, and they pushed back and kind of reset um, what what prorogation does is it really resets. So they do a new throne speech and all of the legislation that we did before is kind of reset and it has to be tabled again, which is so frustrating when, especially when you have really important pieces of legislation. But fundamentally, when it comes to the WE scandal, this money was promised to students. And now that the government was caught in their scandal, somehow that money has disappeared. And I haven't heard what is going to happen with it. I, you know, the liberals, whenever we ask about this, start naming off the other things that they've done for students, not an answering the actual question is, you know, you promised this um, close to a billion dollars uh, to your friends at We Charity. And that was supposed to be going towards helping students. Where is that money now? Why is it not uh, being either handed out to students to uh, for grants or, you know, to help recent graduates with debt uh, or, you know, even if it's around creating more Canada summer jobs, employment opportunities for students, something that would actually uh, support students who are struggling right now and recent graduates. I've talked to so many students, so many recent graduates, many recent graduates who fell through the cracks because they uh, graduated in October. And so they didn't actually meet the deadline, they're still looking for work in a pandemic uh, and they have no access to the student supports, uh, which ended in September, unlike all of the other programs which have been uh, continued and uh, extended. It is it feels like students are being left behind. Recent graduates are being left behind. And it is especially atrocious when you realize that, 
you know, the government was willing to hand this money out to We Charity, but they're not willing to actually invest it in helping students. You asked a question just about kind of what's wrong with that model of charity. And yes, <laughs> I think there was a ton of criticism about this organization before the scandal erupted. I think most people who have worked in um, international development have heard about them, have uh, concerns about the their model of charity. And really, I think generally, when we think about international development and we think about charity, uh, I what we want to have is organizations working towards justice. And the, I mean, I have a lot of concerns about the kind of uh, structures that were set up uh, and real estate holdings and kind of shell, not companies, but shell organizations uh, within the kind of We Charity model. But fundamentally, you know, this idea that Canadians or people from, uh, you know, G7 or G20 countries are going to go over um, and help in what is often what are often called developing countries. It's problematic to begin with, and oftentimes results in this kind of uh, charity development tourism, where there's a lot of money being spent on plane tickets and um, and young people going over without a real benefit for the communities. Um, or if there is a benefit, I don't know if it is in proportion to kind of what the investment is being put in. It could actually just go directly to those communities to uh, to actually help them with the things that they see as their needs. If you just think about the, you know, $40,000 bill that Bill Morneau forgot to pay, you know, what could that $40,000 have done if he didn't fly over there in a kind of uh, tourist fashion to see the work and that is just one little drop in the bucket of thousands and thousands and millions of dollars that are being spent through these kinds of organizations. And I think we need a better model when it comes to addressing the drastic inequality in our global world. Thank you so much. And um, one question that we got a bunch of times was uh, a bunch from young people who want to either get involved in the party or have become a bit disillusioned with electoral politics or um, just, yeah, I just want to understand how people who are activists or organizers can have influence in the party. And you yourself come from an organizer background and co-founded um, the Divest uh, in Victoria, like you said. And so, uh, and also in the South, we've seen Cori Bush get elected, which was super inspiring. She comes out of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so the NDP sometimes has a mixed history with supporting activists and organizers um, who want to run in the party. And do you think there is potential for people who've maybe previously criticized electoral politics to get involved and run, because I'm sure as a former organizer, you've criticized electoral politics. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, no, the answer is 100% yes, we need you. Uh, if there are people listening right now who have been disenchanted and disillusioned with party politics or with electoral part politics in general, and that you have been fighting for climate justice or for equity or for whatever it is in your community that will create a more equitable society. Oh, we, we need you. <laughs> we need you to run. We um, need you to organize. And so if you're thinking about getting involved and I just can't encourage you enough, I, I think I understand people's hesitation in getting involved in politics. And, it, um, you know, when I first kind of thought about it uh, and started to dip my toe into politics, it was something that I uh, initially was, you know, explored for a moment and it was like, absolutely not for me. And part of that was the what I saw as a kind of toxic culture um, within party politics, electoral politics, um, the way in which I got past that and decided to enter uh, as a municipal councillor first was really surrounding myself with organizers who share my values. And in some ways, it created this incredible bubble um, that was a buffer for some of that. And it also uh, builds power to change some of that structure and to do politics differently. Um, what I realized, you know, in my first kind of initial thought about um, 
when I was first thinking about jumping into politics, for a couple of months, as I was thinking about it, I noticed changes in myself. Uh, and that was, you know, changes in uh, the way I was dressing, the way I was talking, the way I would engage on certain issues. And it was really this unconscious, at first unconscious, um, change in what I thought was acceptable and what I thought would be electable. And I think just in going through that, I was uh, turned off by some of the political uh, kind of maneuvering that was happening, but I was turned off by my own way of approaching it. And I didn't want to be that person uh, that would kind of cut off, cut off parts of my self-expression and my truth and uh, the pieces that I really value uh, in order to enter into politics. And I would encourage people, the, the place that I got to was really, uh, if people are if people want to elect me as me and elect me for the things that I care most about and will fight for uh, passionately and, you know, without reserve, then I am happy to get elected. But if uh, if I would need to cut off those pieces or cut off different parts of myself in order to do this, it's not worth it for me. I'll continue to push it, push from the outside. Um, and so, yeah, kind of the core pieces, I would say, is just for folks who are interested, get involved, uh, start volunteering, start, uh, you know, getting involved in campaigns and see if it's something that you like, uh, build a community of people who share your values and who will fight with you. Those are going to be your, you know, closest allies, your friends, your supporters, and then really, yeah, kind of do the, the work to make sure that you're going to stay true to your values and, and keep speaking out about the things that you and your community find to be most important. Great. Thank you. A lot of people online have been talking about an alliance between the NDP and the Green Party, at least for the next election, to try and maximize the number of seats that are that you get um, in Parliament. Has that something that you've thought about? Is that something that the party has thought about or, or given any consideration to? I've definitely seen it on Twitter. It's not something I've given a ton of thought about, um, mainly because the way in which our current first past the post system works is that it doesn't incentivize that. It doesn't create structures that um, encourage political parties to collaborate in that way. Um, and so, well, like I just would fight with tooth and nail and just give almost anything to have electoral reform and proportional representation where we have parties working together, uh, where we have parties forming coalitions and, you know, especially where there are shared values and, uh, ways in which we can move forward the really important issues of our time. In this current political system, it's hard for me to imagine um, how that would work and, and how you would get to different parties with uh, different interests and competing electoral interests in a first-past-the-post system to do that. Um, but who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Anything's possible, so. Yeah, no, makes sense. Thanks. Um, you have a convention coming up at some point. Do you have um, any plans for the convention? What sort of policy resolutions do you want to see um, get passed? Oh, great question. Wow. Um, you know, this will be my first convention as a member of parliament, which is very exciting. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think it's interesting. I I've never actually, I've, I've attended uh, conventions before, but I've never attended as a member of parliament. And so I'm, I haven't actually explored or talked to my colleagues about kind of what my role is there. And I often think about in parties um, and a good friend of mine uh, has framed it this way for me. And I really like their frame is there's kind of different bases of power. There is the caucus. Um, so the elected members of parliament and they uh, have a certain kind of power and influence. There's the people who are the staff, um, the kind of leadership team, the um, a lot of the organizers who like the kind of paid staff uh, party structure. And then there is the membership and a lot of the organizers there who are volunteers who devote their time and energy. And when I think about going to convention, oftentimes I've just been in that kind of members uh, group and organizing and pushing for um, policies from from that place. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I think I need to do a little bit of uh, research and have conversations with my colleagues uh, about how uh, to engage from a different space. Um, and I really think that those, 
those kind of different groups are all really important elements of our party. Um, and we need to make sure that we maintain kind of a support for our membership and our organizers and making sure that their voices are heard. Thank you so much. And we have one last question before we wrap up. It's been an absolute pleasure, but I do a lot of work around, uh, I would say, women's advocacy. And I know that you uh, worked at Victoria Women in Need, running programs for women who've experienced violence and abuse. And COVID has had a disproportionately gendered impact that I think is often forgotten about, um, especially as like a frontline worker and who works at drop-ins usually when we have more in-person contact and just people we know are dying, like whether it's Toronto whether it's British Columbia, people we know are dying, but women have an exceptionally um, disproportionate gendered impact. And this came up this week with the the mention of a mother who works three jobs uh, in the house. And we don't have to get into the nitty gritty about if she needs to return to working three jobs or not. But the fact that a single mother has to work three jobs is disgusting and grotesque. And I want to ask you as a member of parliament, are people reckoning with the fact that this is a there is a huge gendered impact in childcare right now, in household duties, and so much? Uh, thank you so much for bringing up this point. And I do think it's one that is often forgotten. Um, our critic, um, Lindsay Matheson, has brought this up repeatedly, you know, in talking about the shadow pandemic, really the impact of this pandemic on women. And as you said, it is uh, when it comes to domestic violence, we know, um, and violence uh, kind of in the home, um, we know that there have been more calls for service um, that are uh, transition houses and other organizations who are supporting women who experience violence um, are experiencing increased uh, demand for their services. And, you know, that doesn't show us the picture of all the women out there who aren't reaching out for help, who are experiencing this increase in violence, um, the increase in isolation, um, and the increased barriers to accessing help. Um, it is something we need to address. And, you know, we need funding to address. I think oftentimes we hear uh, a lot of pretty words and kind of acknowledgement of the problem, but not actual dollars attached and you named it, you know, childcare is such a huge piece of the gendered impact. We know that this pandemic, we have the lowest participation of women in um, the economy in 40 years. That is wild. <laughs> you know, all of that progress uh, has been erased by a pandemic. And that is in part because we don't have a national childcare program. We don't have accessible, affordable, quality childcare available to families. And we know that disproportionately impacts women. Um, and we were already in a crisis when it came to childcare before this pandemic. And now it is just unbelievable. Uh, but then also, you know, women often are working in precarious part-time or low-paying jobs. And it means that the benefit programs, the support programs that have been provided have uh, oftentimes it's women who are falling through the cracks. And so, you know, I think there has been some indication from the liberals, they are wanting to address this. Um, I, I'm not holding my breath, but I, uh, I do think there is an opportunity to push them to um, invest more in childcare. The secretariat that they promised in their economic snapshot um, is good, but it is no way adequate to the, you know, organization stakeholders, childcare advocates are saying we need $2 billion if we are just to deal with the COVID implications. And that's not then dealing with the crisis that already existed. And so uh, we, we don't have a government who's actually in any way uh, adequately addressing this, but that's first small step of a childcare secretariat. It's a good step in the right direction. But yeah, you know, we just we need more support out there for women, um, and we need. I think fundamentally, you know, even if you take away COVID and you, if you were to rewind a year and to ask me that kind of same question about how women are being impacted right now generally when it comes to violence against women, when it comes to childcare and um, unequal employment opportunities and pay, I would still say we are in a you know huge crisis. And organizations who are supporting women who experience violence have expressed to me and uh, that the, fun the current funding model doesn't work. That so often there is funding for kind of program specific um, you know, short-term P 
pieces, but not for core funding. And we need to get to a place where we're not relying on charity to support people in our community, that we are actually have a government who is stepping up and creating the structures and providing adequate funding so that we don't have people who are struggling in this way, so that we don't have people who feel like there's no other option for them but staying in a violent situation. Thank you so much um, for answering that. And yeah, it's it's just so heartbreaking to see that like it's not being reckoned with, that there's just very disproportionate addressing of these issues. But it was an absolute pleasure to spend the hour with you and giving us an hour. And yeah, I, I'm so grateful. I think Ryan is as well. Yes, very grateful. Just thanks for giving us your time. And where can people find you in social media and, and other places? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. I just I so appreciate it. I loved all of the questions and and I should know all of my social media off by heart, but I don't. So uh, I'm going to say Twitter is Laurel underscore BC. Um, Instagram is Laurel NDP, all one word. And then Facebook, I think, is Collins Laurel. It could okay. be Laurel Collins, so <laughs> We'll link it in the show notes for people. Okay, great. We'll, we'll yeah. put it in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure for a Friday night for us. Oh, well, this, this was, was really yeah. fun for me. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, these episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Han. American political episodes are co-hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande. Music and art for Habibti Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Hanano and Dawson Kimian and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibti Please. And you can find us on Twitter at HabibtiBlease with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content. So it's much appreciated. Yalla, let's grab some tea and shisha. just want to let you all know that Habibti Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is super important to me and others because it's a progressive group of voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives that we see in right-wing and liberal media presently today. And so I want to recommend some shows uh, that are part of this network that I personally enjoy. So Rob Rousseau's 49th Parahel, as well as Feel Rouge, which is an Indigenous storytelling series that featured stories from Indigenous communities in the far north of Quebec. Harbinger Media is listener supported, so please head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and subscribe where you can get subscriber-specific content, 